Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to the August edition of Deep Dive. We are so incredibly honored to welcome back this month the great producer Rupert Hine. I think, if I remember correctly, we did a little kind of scientific poll at the end of the year on Facebook asking our listeners what their favorite episode of last year was, and I'm pretty sure if I remember right, Rupert won that poll. Understandably, that was one of the best conversations we've ever had on here. And I think around the same time, I did a little polling as well on there. If he were to come back and do a deep dive with us, what album would you most want him to talk about? And the votes came in, and it was this one. The Fixes 1983 masterpiece, really, Reach the Beach. As most people know, this is by far their most successful album in their career. It spawned three top 40 hits. And really, there has never been another band that sounds quite like The Fix. There has certainly, in my opinion, never been anyone that writes lyrics quite like Cy Cernan. So we get into some of the philosophy around the techniques used from a production standpoint on this album. Rupert and The Fix made a perfect marriage in terms of their minds and their artistic impulses being in the same place at the same time. We get into all those kinds of things, the behind the scenes, how each band member, what they brought to each song, how they made it better, how they were at their best at that time. Anyway, we are so lucky to have someone like Rupert giving us his time in this capacity. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. You are one of our most popular guests of the last couple of years. In fact, we took a very scientific poll, Rupert, at the end of last year, yeah. on social media to find out what episode was everyone's favorite and you won our poll. So I thought, well, let's bring it back. And uh, the listeners spoke up and they said, let's, we want to hear about Reach the Beach. So I thought, well, let's, uh, let's deep dive Reach the Beach. Yes, I was going, I also, I'm very, very bad. And I was determined in the back of my mind to listen to it <laughs> or at least half of the album just to get me right back in that moment, which right, I, I haven't done because I'm, I missed the boat, as you can see by this late arrival. Um, I'm sure it won't be necessary. It's just, you know, it's one of those things that can tickle your yeah your ears and your memories. Exactly. Anyway. First and foremost, Reach the Beach came out on May 15th, 1983. Uh, that was just before my 10th birthday. So I... I uh, I wow. was not a yes. I was not a record buyer at the time, but I was becoming aware of songs on the radio that I liked and things like that. And of course, I liked uh, one thing leads to another. It was came out on MCA. Do you now? I know you did the first album, Shuttered Room. Was it always assumed that you were going to come back for this one as well? What were those discussions like? Uh, never assumed. No, I think um, <clears throat> you know you you go into one album with that as an objective, and that's it. You know, anything that happens, the life of the album after you've sent it out into the world is obviously beyond your control. So you have no, no real feeling about the immediate future as, you know, re regarding that one act anyway. Mm -hmm. Whichever act it is, that's, you never go into an album thinking it's going to be a sequence of albums. Mm -hmm. um, you two have to, I mean, it, I think the two of you are one of the great marriages of band and producer ever. You two fit together so well. And, and we're gonna, I want to get into sort of their singular sound down the line a little bit. But what else were you sort of working on? What would have been just before this album and just after this album? 
Oh, now that I could, I could tell you okay. that I had all my nice. That's <laughs> okay. Windows. I just wondered if this was a particularly, t you know, uh, I don't know, busy time in your career yeah, or busy. Yeah, I bet. Very, very busy time. Yeah, it was all in the middle of all those Tina Turner records, the Howard mm -hmm. James records. The, mm -hmm. I mean, a, a lot of stuff was going on at that time where I was flat out just one album into another. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Shuttered Room was done with, uh, you know, a five-piece live band that were just beginning to find their feet, meaning that there was no idea about what we were going to do until we mm -hmm. did it. And they played it around a lot live in, in if anything, more sort of punky venues mm -hmm. rather than anything else. Whereas Reach the Beach was really, you touched on the idea of, a symbiotic relationship. I mean, it certainly was. I always felt like I was a sixth member of the band, mm -hmm. and that's probably the only act I could say that mm. about in 150-odd albums. It was just, we were all growing at the same time. You know, mm. I put my Immunity album out, my Waving Not Drowning album out, and Adam and Side, particularly, and Jamie, you know, were all fans of those records and thinking, you know, yeah, we'd like to have some of that stuff too, you know, that you do on your own records, meaning it was a melding, it was a melding of these different characters all working really, really well mm -hmm. and getting away with things that I think nobody would have thought as a unit, the band that did Shuttered Room yeah. and, and the same producer would have gone the way that we did on Reach the Beach and that those are some very, very dramatic and significant changes from their first album. Yes, very much so. Um, the album went on to sell 2 million copies. It's their biggest by far. Reached number eight in the States. There were three top 40 singles, and I'll tell you what they are, listeners, yeah. as we go down the line. One thing that I've always found about The Fix is, well, a couple of things. There's sort of an, and I think we talked about this before, there's sort of a little bit of like an iciness there's a coldness. I, I don't, I'm not European. I was really young during the Cold War and like Eastern Europe and all, you know, these kinds of buzzwords that were floating around in, in the early 80s. But their sound to me sounds like what I imagine that feeling like. It's not a warm sound. It's almost more clinical. And yet it's really good and catchy. Do you feel that way? Or am I the only one who, who sort of gets this sense of iciness from the fix? Well, I'm trying to work out what that would be. I mean, yeah, I don't know either. It's uh, something about the dynamic. It's just, you know, there's no love songs necessarily. It's all very high minded. Psy is a lyricist unlike anyone else. I think maybe the trick there is to, is to, is really the word. When, when you say I see cold, uh, I think that is more of a sonic thing mm. than, than a a what can I say a sort of ideological thing in terms of the music we were going off in this era of taking advantage of lots and lots of technological changes in the studio happening in week by week we had completely different ways of working because of new bits of gear that were coming out and new ways of doing things that none of us had done before and that whole approach you know led to a, a very tight clean very sharp mm -hmm. that's it sound that yeah. was very much what we were going for not with any you know designers to what effect that would have on the listener other than the fact that we were getting all these very hard edges to things because i was fed up 
I mean, to the back teeth with distorted guitars and spunky mm. rock sounds. I just couldn't stand. Mm. They drove me crazy. So I wanted mm. to do something that was ag- aggressive and guitar-led, mm. but we wouldn't get near a fuzz box, you know, or yeah. a distortion pedal or a cranked up amps to, you know, million miles an hour. That was just so old school rock and roll. We wanted to find a new way of getting that same aggression. So we made I like it that. You know, very sort of in a very pop context. Mm-hmm. I mean, not in the way we'd use pop these days, really, but in a pop as opposed to a rock context, yeah. we were finding the same level of aggressions and attack and in your faceness. Mm-hmm. That's uh, you saying that clean is probably the better word. Yeah, you're right. Nothing is on there that doesn't need to be on there, I guess. You know, it's not overblown. It's very clean and precise, but yet it cuts right to the quick in terms of uh, riffs. And there's a ton of songs with great bass lines, a lot of bouncing bass lines in this. Oh, yeah. You know, the one album that Alfie Ages did. Yeah, what was the story there? Do you know why he left or why? It, was it just not working out or what? Um, I mean, well, it, it worked out very... I mean, he's an amazing bass player, um, quite quite busy as a bass player a lot of the time, quite energy, you know, uh, in the in the bass parts rather than the kind of bass parts I, t- I particularly think of where, you know, you, you've just got a really low foundation that is really groove oriented by mm. what notes you're not playing and how short the notes might be and all these things which a lot of bass players don't particularly like to do you know they, they like to keep in these long low rock star bass parts yeah which um again not my kind of style whereas um alfie was very much albeit hyperactive he had these real skills in that area that were a huge part of several tracks on that album I mean, I, they were very much bass led mm. but i think overall he, he <laughs> i think it's true to say that we felt his bass playing was quite pushy mm. and in, in in many ways so was the man and that didn't quite fit into the mm. the, the fix or organic approach i mean they the, the rest of the band just existed as one humanoid in four bits mm. Mm-hmm. Alfie was coming in very much as an outsider, did amazing things for that relatively short space of time he was there. But people wanted to, you know, I think the band yeah. felt like they wanted someone that they could feel was more intrinsically them. Got it. And so that was why he was only there. But boy, did he affect the way that album, you know, worked. I mean, he's a he big sure part did. of that record. There's no yeah. doubt. Yeah, he sure did. How intrinsic do you feel like going back to this idea of the two of you, two entities being so merged together on this, you and them, do you ever feel like, do you think if they had had a different producer, they would have been as successful? Or do you think you you were the perfect guy for them at that time? You didn't necessarily make them, but did you help shape them in a way? Does that make sense? Well, the first part of that question, obviously, I can't answer that. You, you yeah. put someone else. Okay. But- but the idea of, I think, what, what to me that is a huge difference between working with The Fix and pretty much any other artist that I work with is that they, they love to be pushed in, in all kinds of ways that a lot of other bands or particularly individuals in bands might 
pushed back against saying, well, that's not very me to do that. Hmm. They, they didn't have any of that stuff. It was like you could throw ideas out and it's, yeah, let's try that. Hmm. And approach it all with complete a f- fresh approach. I mean, no better example than Adam uh, Woods himself. You know, it, I always look at Adam as being the kind of leader hmm. of the band simply because of his ability to keep people pretty well organized in a lot of these sort of pragmatic ways. You know, he was very good at keeping the band together. Mm. And so that even though Sai would have some ideological leads because of his text and other interesting conceptual things, Adam was really the two feet on the ground, making people turn up, making them do what they needed to do and very good like that. So he was a foundational player, not just in the literal sense, being a drummer. So he would have been typically the kind of guy who would have resisted in 1983 when drum machines and drum programming were still very young that you know if i'd suggested as i did that we used a drum machine on a couple of tracks because i thought we could play over the drum you know over the drum machines or in some way integrate with them but we get this really mechanical cleanliness that we were mm-hmm. talking yeah and he was immediately yeah 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 let's do that so here was the drummer saying yeah, I don't mind sitting out mm. while the guys play the song. That's a tough That's thing true. to say. Yeah. You know, but never at any point is it ever only drum programming. Yeah. And that wasn't yeah. all, all of the tracks anyway, but say half the tracks was. And that was very early days of doing that. It's hard to remember now. And drummers you know, mostly hated drum machines. They just mm. loathed them. Mm-hmm. But because we were dealing with some very new ways of sampling sounds on things that weren't even samplers. They weren't even called that at that time. They'd not really integrated into the recording studio. And most of the sort of drum machines you associate from the very early 80s, ends of the 70s, are very kind of Roland, Yamaha, very obviously synthetic. Mm-hmm. Kraftwerk, Autobahn kind of sounds. He dived in and enjoyed, you know, playing in and around like all the hi-hat parts and top kit parts and uh you know maybe fills but we'd have this sort of engine room lockdown bass drum snare stuff that was still as i say relatively new at that time to be doing on drum machines and making it sound like real drums because we would record the sound of his snare drum and his bass drum and use that in our programming so it was always his sound of the kit right we were just coming in arbitrarily yeah what studio did you record this in? Was it one or several? And then do you remember who else may have been in the studio in that same location at that time? Was, you know, I don't know, the Human League next door or Frankie Goes to Hollywood or something like that? What was happening at these studios? Uh, it was my studio. Oh, it was? Start to finish. No one else. Okay. okay. No, no one else was in the room or in any room next door. It was a one studio studio. And so we just did it all there and, uh, you know, arrived on day one and left on the last day. Okay. And if this album came out in May, did you make this over the winter? Was it cold outside? What was the weather like? Was it one of the ones we did? I remember the shuttered room we did in the winter. Okay. I remember that being snow outside. Ah, okay. And and in England, snow's not that common. We can go quite a few winters without seeing any snow. And I've got some photographs of that. Okay. So, uh, no, this, this, I think this was, so it was released in May. Okay. Um, I, no, because I, I sort of remember it's been quite sunny. 
Oh, good. Okay. I was just curious what the, you know, um, what the outdoors were like. I had uh, Ian Burden on here, who was a member of the Human League during the D.A.R.E. period. And we did one of these for D.A.R.E. And mm -hmm. he was saying that we were making the connection that even though that album, D.A.R.E., came out in the winter and they had a Christmas number one and it's so often associated with cold wintertime, it was actually recorded in the summer. And so he and the girls in the band would be out in the pool, you know. But so while they're making the music, one thing is happening outside. But when it's actually coming out and being accepted by the public, it's a totally different season. You know, I just wondered if there was maybe something like that going on with Reach the Beach. No, I get I get a little bit confused between from the session perspective, Reach the Beach and uh, Phantoms, which are kind of similar recording sort of methodology. Mm hmm. And so was Walkabout, really, but it was just things... Where we were already trying to change a couple of things just to keep it fresh. Okay, uh, well, let's see. Let's go into some of the tracks. Uh, we'll go with the first one, One Thing Leads to Another, this reach number four. In the Actually, you know what? First, let me, let me stop first. I feel like we need to talk about Going Overboard, which is a song that has popped up on their Greatest Hits collection. In fact... Um, yeah. They put out a, a, a one of our listeners is a guy named John Bolsar, who you may have what, dealt with before because he um, compiled and produced the Fix's Ultimate Collection CD. And in that CD, Cy gives some thoughts about some of the songs that are on it. And I'm going to read them as we come up to it. But Going Overboard is a great tune and it's on their greatest hits, but it was recorded during this session, but left off the album. My understanding is because they were worried that there were too many references to water already with reach the beach. And then to have something on there called going overboard, it was just too many nautical references. So they, they cut it out, even though it would have been an obvious single. Do you remember the making of this song? Oh, very, very much so. It's a great, great track. Uh, I don't. I don't agree with the too much water. I think conceptually that was fabulous, and obviously going overboard, the song itself has got nothing to do with water. Right. So you know that's it doesn't ring any bells, and I don't think anyone would have thought that we were going overboard was, as I recall, it was very much that some people thought it was too jokey. Okay, I could see that. There's sort of a seriousness, maybe a serious vibe or feeling to the overall album, and that would have maybe thrown it off a little bit. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it came from the band. I think it was other mm. people who thought that. It wasn't. Oh, really? We loved it. We loved it. And you've okay. got also to remember that when we did One Thing Leads to Another, the record labels, that was, that, as far as they were concerned, that was a B-side. They didn't even want that on the album. <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
we fought against it, and the the English label, you know, were adamant about that, and they they thought it was really better that we didn't even have it on the record. Then we got some feedback from the American label because obviously we were an English band in England. It was going to come out in England first. So you know what America demands of an album comes later. Here in this particular case,、uh, two of the guys at MCA in Los Angeles heard the early master tapes, an early copy, and they flipped and said, "A, they loved the album, and they were just hysterical about the album. They were so enthusiastic. They didn't have this somewhat mealy-mouthed attitude、mm. that this record label had." And They said、oh, that one thing leads to another track. You know, we think that should be a single. Now, this was, you know, this was the English record company who, for the people to sign this, saying, "Well, we don't think it should even be on the album." What do you mean? Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, it's so weird. The things that seem so obvious to some are so are, others are just blinded by it. That they, is they, baffling. They didn't think there was a real spin it. They thought it was everything was just riffing. Ah.、Oh. And in a way, that is that's、mm-hmm. true. Then you know, you, there's a lot of great, great tracks where it's essentially all about the riffing,、mm-hmm. it, and it just adds up to something that's got that extra thing. As long as you've got the memorability of something in the chorus, then you've got a chorus hooky point, and the groove was you know outrageous, I think, and still really great, and also kind of slightly peculiar. And all the backing vocals, everything about that song, I loved, and it's one of my. I always put it in my top five singles that I've made. Oh, good one! Fifty Live, and I think I, I usually put it number one, to be honest. Yeah, yeah.、Um, there is. So I wanted to ask you about some of the dy- sound, the sonic dynamics within this. First of all, what I know the guitar riff, but there's a sound going on with him. It's percussion of some kind. It always. <laughs> I was trying to think what it reminds me of, and bear with me here for a second. It reminds me of the sound of watching a sort of science fiction movie of that era that involves teleportation. And so, if somebody gets into like a you know a little capsule and the door closes, and then they teleport to some other capsule, the sound the door makes when it closes—that's sort of this backwards percussion sound that's attributed. That's Uh, going along with that guitar riff, what what is that sound, and how did you do it? Who even thought of that? It's just this kind of science fictiony sort of,、uh, and then it then it has that meow, you know that those meow songs go sounds going on. I'm, these are the little dashes, little sprinkles of magic pixie dust that I find so interesting, and I'm always curious who thought of that. How did they know that was going to make this song better? You know. So yeah, that was just、um, that was a mix of a backwards and forwards hi hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recording-wise, along with who knows what other treatments we did at the time. I mean, we were pesky little demons, you know, constantly <laughs> making sounds more and more interesting and working on it all the time, because nobody in the band wanted things that were authentic or like they sound live or any other. They just wanted to make a great record.、Mm-hmm. We were all there painting pictures with sound, and if you want to hear the sound more clearly, check out the extended mix, the very first. Couple of bars is that sound on its own? Okay, I actually just bought that. So in getting ready, I I sometimes discuss my own history with a band or an album when I do one of these. And the Fix were actually one of those bands that I liked, but I didn't I didn't like enough to feel compelled to go buy an album or、yeah. follow them or anything like that. I didn't. They were fine, but they were very much sort of in the background for me for most of the. 
you know, when I was growing up. Yeah. Cool. About uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I live in Denver and they came through town in concert <clears throat> and they were playing this little bar that's mo mostly like a hard rock and heavy metal bar. And I had never oh, been wow. there before. And I thought, I'm <clears throat> such a, I love 80s music so much. Let's go see if I, maybe I'll find out that I actually like The Fix. If I go see them in concert, why not? You know, it's just this little bar. Mm -hmm. And I went and there were only about 30 people there. But I, I realized I knew every song and I didn't think that I did, you know. And I really got in. And from then on, I've just been into them ever since. And I bought the Ultimate Collection Greatest Hits CD. And I found Reach the Beach shortly after that for a dollar at a uh, thrift store. And a couple of weeks ago, when I started putting this together with you, I went to get Reach the Beach. And I realized I must have lost the CD. I couldn't find it. So I hurried and bought a, a copy on um, iTunes, which includes that extended version that you're talking about. Oh, nice. Yeah. <clears throat> it is. It's not a bad one. I mean, they, you know, it was a three and a half minute song and that mix was an eight minute mix. So, yeah, yeah it was quite... But it deserves it, you know, it deserves it. And now I've seen them in concert four or five times. They're here again in a couple of weeks and I have most of their albums. And yeah, I love them a lot now. Right. Keep Cy, up I, I absolutely will. Cy has a way of with words that is he the sole lyricist or were other people contributing? He is a sole lyricist except for half a dozen tracks over the over the four albums. Hmm. that were contributed by the the lady that wrote all the lyrics with me on my own songs. Who's, oh. who's really a poet and an artist, a poet and painter. And and is a you know very and sadly she died a couple of years ago. But oh, no, she's no. really, really brilliant, you know, great, great lyricist. I mean some of the lyrics she's written with me on my own records are truly yeah. sounding. And so so she did tracks like you know, Woman on a Train and What Are All the and Secret Separation and Yeah. Good one. It's just quite a few tracks. Okay. But otherwise, yeah. it was it was only Cy. It was certainly never never anyone else in the band. It was really, you know, ninety five percent Cy. Okay. Yeah, he just has a vision unlike anyone else. I mean, you take the line that I always think of when I think of the fix is when the wrong antidote is like a bone in the throat. Mm -hmm. Nobody nobody would put a line like that in a pop song. I mean, I know they're not specific, you know, it's not, they're not pop in the same way that Rick Astley is pop, but they, a song that is on pop radio, you know? Yeah, that's, it was, it, I was making pop records, but I just wanted to make aggressive pop records. Yeah. yeah, he's got a way with words that no one else does, I don't think. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I want to say is that in his, so first and foremost, okay, his little write-up is just one line. His write-up on this song in the Ultimate Collection, it just says, pursuing the mantra, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, uh, who knows what, you know, sai has got a worldview unlike anyone else. But one thing he talks about is that primarily the song is about, you know, lying politicians, really. When will they learn that, this is a quote I read in another article, when will they learn they are our servants, not our masters? If you're going to be a liar, you'd better be a damn good liar and remember what you said or the whole thing's going to get pear-shaped. And that was 30 years ago and look where the system is now. And I know you in the UK are dealing with some things similar to what we are in the US. It's a it's a tense, crazy time right now. And this song has not lost a step, you know? No, I would agree, I'd agree. And quite often his lucidity could be hazy, mm. but it was always communicative and expressive 
Yes. And you, even when you yeah. put your finger on it, I mean, Saved by Zero being perhaps the most uh, extreme it, example of that. Exactly. He that's you're right. He, I don't know. Always know what he's saying, but he I know he means it, which makes me think it must be important. And if I were smarter, I would probably figure it out. So, yeah, that <laughs> an obvious first single, I think. Um, yeah. Actually, I should say, I think it was the second single. I think Saved by Zero may have. I saw a mix and match on that. Do you know which out which song came out first as a single? Oh, definitely one thing. Uh, Saved, by, okay. Saved by Zero was the second one. Okay. I thought I saw both. Okay. Uh, second track, Side of Fire. This reached number two in the States. I've always thought that this was sort of an odd pick for a single, other than it's got the this great inset this great addictive guitar riff. You know, it's not an obvious leap from the speech speaker's song to me, except for these um, this amazing riff in there. Um, no one plays the talk about sighing his lyrics. No one plays the guitar like Jamie Westorm. True that. Yeah. Um, there's sort of a forebodingness to it, but yet it's also sort of casual. I think this is the only song that Dan K. Brown, who has been their bassist ever since, actually plays on. Do you remember the creation of this? Was this an obvious single to everyone in the room? Oh, no, not at all. No, nothing's ever an obvious single, even when we're doing <laughs> one thing that leads to another. No, you don't, you don't think like that. You're just thinking about making the best record you can and maximizing every track, you know, squeezing out every last bit of juice in it. Uh, that's all we are kind of working on. Sign of Fire, though, was was different because Dan there was Dan was there, and it was after the main thrust of the recording had been done. It was in that sense uh, not an afterthought, but certainly something that came quite late in the day. And no, I I never thought of that as a single. But literally, I think the only tracks I thought of a single were not. I didn't particularly think of it at the time, although I have to say, in my heart of hearts, I had that feeling about one thing leads to another, but Sign of Fine Note was more sort of atmospheric 
um, in the context of that album without being a big picture type atmospheric thing. Yeah. Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot, but no, I wouldn't have thought of it as a single. I was surprised they they released it as such. To be honest. Yeah, I think at that point though, their momentum was going so well with, yeah. um, you know, that almost anything—not just anything, but any song that has that's quality was going to continue in the public imagination for a little while. You know. Yeah, uh, Heart of Stone. That's very much a, a lyrical reference. I mean, the book or the the film, if you like, the film of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, interesting. It's very, very, you know, it's, well, I, I always forget how much uh, Rupert Greenall uh, was adding to that album. Because I, I, when I think of it, I think so much of Jamie's guitar and the groove and, and size vocal. Yeah. And really, you know, Rupert's keyboards are all over that record in a, in a way that I think he was allowed to come up with... I say aloud, but I mean, I mean that in the sense of you know, rather than having a keyboard player tucked in the sound doing that job that mm-hmm. um, you, you do when you've got guitar and keyboards in a band, you've got to be respectful of, of each other. Uh, uh, Jamie's guitar was so tight, sonically, mm-hmm. uh, and his playing style was so tight and compressed. Is it, we were it, it allowed uh, Rupert sort of more glossy and glamorous, if you will, keyboard sounds and lines. And I just hearing that little bit just then, I realized how much of the album's character is actually Rupert's, really. So yeah. Yeah, um, he plays... Uh, so let me move on to track three here, because I feel like Running is a track that uh, where he takes more center stage than on... At least especially the first two songs we've heard. Say that running is a little more keyboard dominant. One of the beauties of this album, though, is I feel like everybody gets to shine. You know, not one one uh, uh, instrument is not featured heavily over another. Everybody fits this puzzle perfectly. You know. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, I didn't know if like that was is that your sensibility? Is it theirs? Is it? Are you thinking while you're making this? 
Everyone here is so good at what they do. We got to make sure that everybody gets heard and everyone gets a chance. You mentioned Adam earlier, the the drummer, sort of sacrificing yeah. his own playing once in a while for a drum machine or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. Is that is his philosophy? Is that consistent among everybody else in the band as well? I think it is. I mean, I think in, in that sense, Adam's version of it was so much more obvious because he was playfully giving into a machine contributing contributing to his drum parts and that, as I said, that that could be a real ego problem for somebody not very secure in themselves and Adam always was rock solid not just for himself but for the whole band mm -hmm. um, Jamie thinks exactly that same way maybe he doesn't express it in quite the same way verbally but he absolutely does and I think in his own way Rupert does although you know Rupert would sometimes have to be smacked and he was okay about that right. <laughs> but, but, but only because he would come up with so many ideas yeah, and and they were almost all good. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like you had you said, well, well, come on, that's not a great idea. You're going, well, that is another good idea, but you know, you put five good ideas all on top of each other, and it all ends up brown. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> so you know, we we we'd rather have like two AC, and so he he would take that as an argument. He would never protest. So I'm I'm, I'm making it sound like there were arguments. There were never arguments. No. There were only ever suggestions. It's mm -hmm. also part of the way that I like to work as a producer. I don't like to try and get anyone to do anything. I like to just massage it into being. And because picture with them, uh, they always had their, their best parts. Uh, we would keep just the, you know the best idea they had for that song. I mean, as a, as a, presumably everyone would, and mm -hmm. and that was always based on how well integrated it was with everyone else's part mm. so i'm constantly looking at this painting in front of me just looking at where the colors are going to go without messing each other up you know two great colors on their own and they side by side Ooh, oh that doesn't look good mm -hmm. and so that you know in that sense my job as sound painter there is just to keep an eye on things and make sure that we've got all that we need and no more yeah i love that a sound painter that resonates so much with me. I get what you mean with that. I like it. Um, I forgot to read the little write-up from the CD on Sign of Fire real quick. At Dan K. Brown's first rehearsal with the band, he started improvising over the end of Stand or Fall. We said, play that again, Dan. And so Reach the Beach became complete with the Sign of Fire. Was that the last song that you guys worked on? Do you know? As I remembered it, which is the reason why, yes, that Dan, okay. any track that Dan appeared on. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so yeah, running, I will admit, I, and I often will just insert some running is the, uh, song that I, that's the song I forget. I, I would say I like, I like it a lot, but it, of all of them, that's the one where I'm like, which one's running? I can't remember which one that is. Yeah. And, but, um, that doesn't mean it's bad. It's just that those first two songs are such obvious singles and I have an affection or a deeper thought on every, for every other song on the album, but that's the one where I'm like, Oh yeah, running. Okay. I remember that one now. Yeah. I like that song, but it doesn't leap out at me. You no, know what I mean? it's, it's, it's one of those tracks that it's not, it's not a strong song in the songwriting sense. It's a, it's a, I think it's a very strong track mood wise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, and those two things are quite often, you know, different. And I was, yeah really memorable songs with either either because of a very memorable chorus or a very memorable hook aspect somewhere it's very different running doesn't have that particularly yeah you know, it's much more of a mood it does sound great 
there's nothing wrong with it other than it you know it's the least memorable i would say yeah just um, that chorus thing it's not it doesn't have a big memorable chorus right but... um the, you know in preparing to talk with you one of the things that i saw when it, when doing my research is that there are there are some debates out there as to whether the fix are a good singles band or a good album band you know not everybody can do but i I, ha I, t I have a bit of a an opinion that gets me in trouble sometimes where I that I think Elton John as great as he is is more of a singles person than an album person you know and not everyone likes when I say that but I you know for a, a guy as great as he is he doesn't have that one definitive album that's like you've got to own this every record collector needs to own this album yeah. what do you say about that do you think the fix can they do it all? I mean, I know they can do it all, but do you think there's some, can you understand why somebody would feel that way? Well, it's, it's so not the way I think. I, I don't, don't even know how to answer that. I don't do singles. You know, I just yeah. make music with artists. The idea that if you're just making the best recording and arrangement and production of a song, that's all you're involved in. Never at any point do you think, is this a single? Is this now? I mean, it's just so damaging if you think like that, because mm. it then makes you kind of tweak things in a more obvious way, underlined, you know, in a more repetitive way, underlined, in a more commercial way, underlined, all of which are terrible things to do for your own music. You should never think like that. You've just got to maximize the point of the song on every level, its groove, its text, the quality of its text, you know, the way that you present it, but there's enough to think about without ever wondering whether it might be a single. So I never ever think, it's it's down to other people to think that. If someone at the label, you know, and, and they're with one thing leads to another, was a good example. The British label not only didn't think it was a single, they didn't even think it should be out on the album. The Americans just loved it from day one. And I can't remember the other reactions from other territories, but just using those two as the example. So if you listen to outside opinion about that, that would have also completely fucked you up. Yeah, so you know, true. One because one's convincing you to leave it off the album, the other one's saying it was the first single. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you can't think anything. I I usually don't think about singles till the album's completely done. It's gone off to the label, and they, they at some point they'll say if it's not obvious, you know, mm -hmm. your feelings on the singles. We think the only contenders are bloody brown, bleedy blee. What's mm -hmm. feeling on that? And if it is either of those two. Would there be anything you'd like to go in and tweak with a single in mind? Hmm. That's the only time I would take that on board. Got it. Okay. I like that philosophy. Okay, track four, Saved by Zero. This was this reached number 20 in the States. Yeah. Uh, he says about it in here, living hand to mouth, but doing what you want to do almost makes you want to sing about it. Again, that's a sciism, if ever I've heard one.
Yeah. But uh, one thing in uh, doing a lot of research, what something that was a little more coherent that I was reading about this particular song is that it ties back to the Buddhism that he was sort of studying at the time. And you and I talked about this last time too. I know that's uh, you lean toward Buddhism as well. And the mm -hmm. idea of living without anything, you know, that no possessions, no, not being, you know, anchored by things, by money and things, possessions, whatever they might be. So mm -hmm. the idea of being saved by zero is being saved by being able to let go of everything. Does this ring true to you? Uh, he never talked about it. Oh, he didn't. Oh, I assumed you two were just Buddhizing, Buddhisming it up over there. You know, like, look at what I'm, we're learning and... This is so amazing, and I'm going to write songs about it. That's not what was happening. Not, not to say all, all that conversation was alive and healthy and going on, <clears throat> but so many people wanted to know what that song was about because they couldn't fathom it. Mm. And I think that's what Sai loved about it, and I don't want to spoil that bubble. Mm. Okay, well, maybe, maybe there's just different meanings out there. That's one of the ones that I read that was starting to make sense to me as well because I've tried to figure it out forever. Yeah. And when, Whenever I like I've said I've seen them live now several times and he does this little uh, hand gesture whenever he sings this song and he makes a zero with his finger with his hand and then and then let's go like with a poof motion you know like saved by zero and then poof it goes away and it's just like boy what what does that mean it's just getting weirder and weirder here Cy you know so yeah the, the possession thing kind of made me think maybe that was it okay. No, I think there's a, you know, certain, he, he can be the Salvador Dali of <laughs> if he wants to, and that's what it should be. It's an art. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's it's special. You're very right. Yeah. Such a great song. Um, okay. Opinions. I love that, oh, that track. Yeah. Do you, <laughs> um, do you have a track on the record? It is. Okay. Um, and the work, the work that went into the rhythm of that was supreme. I mean, the rhythm. Tell me about it. Trap is, is really quite something why well it just i mean um, i know why i like it but why did it yeah. why do you f say this uh but well because it's so elegant yeah. and yet so i mean there's so much detail in the rhythm uh but that elegance doesn't stop it being just undeniably powerful it's not you know it's not a kind of delicacy that becomes intangible it's really strong it, and it was to me that's the almost the biggest hook in that song is the rhythm the percussion. yeah i could see that um and also it was again that was another one i was doing with adam so he, he was really enjoying my programming side of things so we did it you know sitting side by side i mean you know me programming and and asking about things and working on it in a way that it was the drummer and the producer just putting their brain together to yeah to make it very, very satisfying and different. And it is, I think it's quite different. To it is. There's never like, been anything like it. And you're right that those guitar licks, um, is this a, is that a Jamie thing? I'm not a musician, so I'm always sort of like, how do these people find the sound? You know, is it them? Is it their fingers? Is it the producer that's doing something to them? Again, going back, no one has ever sounded like Jamie. In fact, I read somewhere that you, uh, I think it was on Song Facts or something you did, so, said somewhere, was that you have you would have no idea how much work went into making that guitar sound like that. And this would be one of those times. Is that true? Was it just, I don't well, know, that, it was painstaking <laughs> or what? The whole of that album was 
um, really maximizing on things that we discovered about Jamie and the way that he played on Shuttered Room, but oh, didn't have, oh. we didn't really have the technological know-how to do what we ended up doing on Reach the Beach. And, and the, the work that went into his guitar sound was colossal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was very involved to start with, and we were trying different ways of getting this real cutting kind of sound because the compression that he liked to use uh, tended to muddy it up, but it wasn't it wasn't his fault. It was just the way that guitar pedals and things worked back then. What we were doing was doing all the kinds of things he was trying to do between his guitar and his amp already, but we were doing it between his guitar, our desk, and lots of gear, then out to the amp. Mm. So the sound, although it was very much through his amp with his kind of front-end sound, uh, the journey from his guitar to that amp was quite complicated. Ah, interesting. And, And it was all to do with different kinds of compression working together um, and compounding this incredible cut that he's always had. But we were only, I think I maybe mentioned this to you on the first time we spoke, but the difference was that his way of playing is so unique that you can only do what we did Mm. to the guitar sound with Jamie. Yeah. And I've tried it, but other players it just doesn't work. It sounds quite pathetic, and it's because his, it's he his his wrist action mm. is so snappy. He doesn't play, you know, with an arm that swings around, playing mm-hmm. completely tight. His right arm is so fixed in an angle posture, and everything's happening from the wrist. But is so rapid and hard, and played very very fast, even on a slow song. The, the action across the strings is so fast and so hard. I mean, the strings would literally, you'd have to have really mm-hmm. high gate strings to take that much of a beating. And yet it never sounded rocky. No. It doesn't sound like what people imagine. It, they think of big sort of, you know, I don't know, Led Zeppelin sort of guitar yeah. sound. When they think of that, and they don't expect this small, tight sound to be the product of that kind of work. But that's exactly why we were doing it. And... You know, it was it was copied, you know, many times in the wake of that album or the wake of that album's success. I had so many tapes from artists with guitarists trying to do a Jamie West. <laughs> I can see that. Uh, look, we have a guy just like Jamie. Look, you'll love us. Yeah. But no, no one's like Jamie. Yeah, so funny. Oh, man, I could see that. Um, okay. Track five, <laughs> Opinions... Uh, yeah. This one, uh, this is my least favorite song on the album. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about it. Watching, waiting, playing zoo. Don't play to win, to be second to you. The door will open when I suffer enough. We'll hold this hand when the going gets rough. Such good intentions always nipped in the bud What you expect, well, you never could If I stop laughing just to be at your door Always opinions Turning you round 
ballad but it's it's the slowest song on the album yeah and i was trying to think though would i would i replace this with going overboard and i don't think i would because i understand that every album needs a song kind of like this around the cleanup spot the fourth or the fifth song is usually the ballad or the slow song or the epic or whatever it might be and so even though i'm not i don't love this song that much i recognize why it needs to be there does that make sense I think so. Okay. I think, it makes, I think it makes sense for you. Right. To me. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, it, cre- it it provides the balance. You know, if you take this out, you put going overboard there, then the album is upbeat almost throughout. Um, not upbeat might be the wrong word, but I there is there needs to be some balance. And so a song like Opinions comes in to kind of just slow everything down, remind everybody that there's dynamics here. There's ups and downs. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't particularly love it. Do you have thoughts or feelings about it? Uh, well, it's one of my favorites. I it's, knew you were going to say that. Everybody says that when I say what I don't like. Most um, people that love that album love that track. Really? I'm the, yeah. I'm the weird one. Okay. It, it, and they love it because it's such a big landscape. It's, yeah. it's so wide, but it's so spacious. It's not, it's, it's big and wide, but there's very little sound filling it up. It's just. The reaction to the sound in terms of either you know distance reverberation or some kind of spatial thing that gives it this size and this air i think that's what the people that love it love that breadth and and because really a lot of those tight the one thing leads to another all the going overboard tracks are very compressed tight they're in a square little box and they're thrust right at your head you know it's like like an arrow right in the center of your head Outside is a big fat warm bath that you just wallow around in for five or six minutes before you're picked up and thrown into the next one. <laughs> that is perfect, perfect imagery. That is it. You're right. Yeah, you're right. It starts out also kind of eerily. Some of the, a lot of the songs on here either start out sort of spooky or eerie, or they start out with like an incessant drum sound or an incessant bass line <laughs> or something like that. Everything has very powerful beginnings. A lot of these songs do, you know. Yeah, I think in many ways that outside also reflected quite a bit of the kind of stuff that I do on my own records more um, that they also were sort of fans of. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of spatial sonic painting thing was something they enjoyed about that track. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a feeling they would love it and others would love it and I'd be the weird guy and it turns out I am. Um, okay, well, let's go to the second side. This is uh, a side two starts out with Reach the Beach, the title track. I lose my 
wanted to insert, I was waiting for this song specifically to mention this, the album cover, Reach the Beach, is a George Underwood painting. And for yeah. anyone who doesn't know who George Underwood is, he is the childhood friend of David Bowie that I have heard either punched him in the eye or threw something at his eye that made one of David Bowie's eyes the, uh, the other color. And so um, that's this guy. George Underwood has been a successful artist ever since. Um, I follow him on Facebook. He posts really beautiful things on there. Now that I know that's a George Underwood, I absolutely can see it. But if anyone's wondering, that's uh, he designed that album cover. Was the album always going to be called Reach the Beach? Do you know? Uh, oh, no, no. Don't think about titles to be finished. Okay. Um, but he did all their albums, these, except for the first one. Oh, he did? I wondered. Okay. I wasn't sure. So, I mean, Reach the Beach exists because of the bass line. Yes, it does. I love Reach the Beach. And I think that probably could have been a fourth single if they had decided to continue. Probably better than Sign of Fire, I would agree. Mm. Not an upbeat track particularly, but it, anyways, it's, it's got a lot of space around it. Not as much as outside, but it has a quite wide solid canvas, but maintains as a medium groove. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I really like the funkiness of it, which is not a word that would be associated with the fix all that often. But um, it reminds me of like, I don't know, bouncing a basketball or something like that. It just has this incessantness, this this driving funky beat to it. I really like it a lot. They never, they never played funk music, but they're very, very funky as a band. You're right. That's it. Yeah. Um, the sequencing on here. Now, the, some people criticize the second half of the album as being mostly filler. I actually prefer, I think, the second half to the first half because there's, to me, there's more interesting things. Go. I don't know if that's the right word. Whatever it is, these songs really resonate with me more. Uh, did you have a hand in the sequencing? Is that part of your job? Oh, yeah. Really? Very much so. Tell me about it. Well, I mean, days go into getting the sequencing right. It's one of the, it's one of the longest jobs. That's what people say. I, you know, the only thing I can relate it to is if I were to make like a mix tape or a mix CD for a girl or something like that. And uh, I usually know what song needs to be the first song and I know what song needs to be the fourth or fifth song and then the last song. But I was talking to Marco Peroni recently about uh, Adamant's Kings of the Wild Frontier album. And he was saying the same thing that like, man, sequencing is, that's the hardest part that takes forever. Why is that? Why does that happen? Well, because you want it to be, um, and that's what it's a, it's a complete, you know, it's a series of chapters like in a book and it needs to have a string to it. It needs to have, um, you know, maybe not in a literal sense, a narrative to it, but it needs to have, it needs to be a guided journey. And every time you change songs, you potentially change keys. Mm -hmm. uh, you change, you know, tempos, you change the spirit, the esprit of the song. And all these things have got to be, you know, when you've just come out of one song that you love, you don't want to do a traffic jam into the next track and it just sounds horrible just because it's a completely different key and doesn't you know, work well like a flattened fifth against this key. So it's ugly and jars mm -hmm. or, you know, the, the tempo when you come out of a slow track, you don't necessarily want to be suddenly wound out to the fastest track on the record and, you know, you've got to, everything's a real journey. I have a system for doing it and often it works very quickly, mm. but when, it, but when it doesn't, it, you know, you can, you can 
take quite a lot of time because you can't keep listening to different sequences back to back. It doesn't work because you, you, as you do it, you get, you're just getting sodden with all the tracks. You need to come at each one with a certain freshness, which is why it kind of takes a bit of time. Interesting. You can't just do one sequence, listen to it all the way through, do another one and listen to it all the way through. You will find some things for sure out, but you won't find out necessarily which is best until you sit back for a day. Got it. Um, I, you know, I've never considered this before, but now I'm curious. Do you ever fade out what, the end of one song uh, at a certain point to make it fit better with the song that comes after? Or sometimes. Really? Some, not often, but sometimes you can tell everything about those two tracks being back-to-back is great, except for something to do with a dynamic like fade out. Yeah. Fucking it up in some way. Right. Okay. Okay. So track seven, changing. Uh, this is another one that has kind of an incessant drum beat. Uh, I I really like this one a lot too. As I said, I like the whole back half of this album. I hear a cowbell in the mix, I believe. Um, I don't think there's a lot of cowbell on Fix albums. And I, 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 that's one of those things you're going to have to tell me whose idea that was. There's some trademark Jamie guitar riffing going on here. Um, one uh, description I read of his is of his guitar playing is riffy, then ethereal. And I thought that's perfect. That is the exact description I think of Jamie's playing. It's riffy, but it's also then ethereal at the same time. And this song especially features that. Do you remember anything about changing? Yes, I did have to, I, that's not the track that I often think of with that album. Mm. Mm. It's funny, I, I, I think in the back of my mind, I think of it as being later than that record because in you know, like both Liner and Reach the Beach being either side of that track, both those are very memorable tracks to me, but changing isn't so much. Huh. But anyway, there you go. No, that's interesting. So as I was mentioning, running being kind of the one I forget about, changing might be the one that you sort of forget about. That's really fascinating. Running and changing and changing and running. 
<laughs> now, t- going back to Adam and the drum, that song, I mean, it's driven by this incessant beat. Was this a situation where he was he hit a snare drum once and you programmed everything we just heard? Or is he actually there playing it think, in real time? I think, on that, I think on that track, he was playing it. Okay. Because I, I, I can feel the 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 way that the bass drum actually feels. Okay. And that's got an Adam leg attached yeah. to it. Oh, Adam leg. I love it. Okay, good. Uh, you mentioned Liner, the next song, track eight. That's probably my favorite song on the album, actually. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funky, and I would imagine that's probably Alfie back. To, I think that was when Alfie was in the band doing that uh, funky bass line. Um, yeah, no, this, is, this is the only album that Alfie did, and Sign of Fire was the only track that he didn't do on this record. So. Okay. okay. Um, there are, I think, synth horns happening in Liner, which is not, again, not another thick staple. Uh, who decides on horns, and what's the thinking behind synth horns versus real horns? I don't think anybody wanted to have real horns just because it's that's a bit of a slog when you're gigging. You know, it's not it's not much fun. Uh, and and you're right, they're not a band that would you normally think about that. So no. I, I can't remember who. I think I think probably Rupert. That's just Rupert's keyboard parts. I mean, I don't think anybody really thought of it as being anything more brass-like than that. You know, it was just kind of that kind of a part that paid on a sort of synth sound. And I think it, and I think it works very well. Probably would do it in a different way if you did it these days, mm-hmm. but it's very much of its time. I like that. Yeah, I do too. And you saying that makes sense. Okay, so that sound is not necessarily the keyboards trying to imitate horns. It's just the sound that it make and they it's may sound similar to horns. Okay. Yeah, it's sharing the same flavor sonically. It shares the same flavor, and I think that's that's all. We, I don't think we would have ever thought of using real horns. For okay, yeah, they don't strike me as a horn band. There is another classic. Uh, what is he talking about? Sigh line in that one that I like too, like a rubber duck floating in a bath. 
Again, you just don't, that's not a sentence you hear uh, uttered in many pop or rock records, no matter the era, but that's, that's how his brain works. Yeah, we love his brain. It's we wobbly. Sure it is. That's it. That is. Yeah, I'm friends with him on Facebook, too, and he'll post things, especially politically at this time. And I, I know what he's getting at, but the way he says it is just unlike anyone else that says it. I think, boy, his brain works unlike anyone else's. Um, okay. It's a, it's a shroom brain. <laughs> what does that mean, a shroom brain? I'll say no more. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, we don't have to go down that road. I don't want to get specific, but, you know, there's always uh, high living is associated with Rock's lifestyle and stuff like that. I I don't know if that was ever an issue for you or the bands you were working with, but if you want to comment on it, you can. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Uh, I never really worked with bands that were obviously drugged. Yeah, okay. Uh, I avoided it like the play, and I learned very early on that... You know, you can have such great ideas and they can get so trashed with the spirit of too much of a, you know, an inhibited mind created by substances that it just makes the whole process at best difficult and at worst mad. Mm -hmm. uh, and early on, I did an album with Kevin Ayers. I think we talked about this last time, but with Kevin, and he certainly would, would not mind me saying if he was still alive, this fact that, you know, he had a, a lust for cocaine and for the, the one album I did with him, it was the only album that I ever did mm. with that drug. And I said afterwards, every time it was, it was mostly because you would just convince yourself with that drug that things were sounding <laughs> fucking amazing. <laughs> Guys, listen to this. And everyone's going, if they're on it as well, everyone's going fucking amazing. <laughs> and you know, it, it wasn't necessarily, it was in your heads and it was in that moment of time, but we needed to, for it to exist at another time, like another day and another listener after it's been released to a public, having the same reaction as we could. And that wouldn't have been possible because they, mm. well, I mean, I suppose it would have been possible if they got into the same space. If, you know, that, that right there, doing that one album with him was, with Kevin Ayers, was so much fun. But after that, never again. And I yeah. didn't. Never, yeah. I never touched again. And I always asked if I was at all concerned that the artists I was working with felt like they would be somewhat druggy, mm -hmm. that I would just, you know, I would know not to go there. Yeah, that uh, that doesn't surprise me that you strike me as somebody who would feel that way. And, and I I'm glad you did. So and it doesn't strike it doesn't surprise me about the fix either. They seem like more level headed guys than the usual rock and roll partiers. Although I was reading an, uh, uh, they were pretty good at partying. They just didn't have to, you know, be madly out of it. They yeah. were pretty good at partying. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I've, got some, I've just been going through lots of. I've been clearing out all these photos, you know. And there's, there's there were just I, I came across these shots of us in a hotel pool somewhere in California, and you know, underwater shots, above water shots, all the crew being thrown into. I mean. You know, just pandemonium. Journalists who were there being thrown into the pool, everybody, and then taking photographs of them or underneath with underwater cameras. <laughs> I mean, not that anything, anything shocking was going on, but just it was such mayhem. There were yeah. people upside down, the right side up, people with clothes on, people without clothes on. There was, yeah, they knew how to party. 
Oh, I love it. That's great. I uh, I was in one of the articles I was reading to get ready. Uh, Cy was talking about how this album suddenly launched them into the stratos stratosphere of fame that they were not used to. You know, a couple mm -hmm. months prior, nothing was happening. And then suddenly they're one of the biggest bands in the world. But yeah. Then it, but then it didn't last that long. I really like Phantoms, the follow up album, but it didn't have the same, I don't know, feel or cachet or whatever. And so that wave just died right back down, you know, and but it was fun while it lasted. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was a very particular moment in time, Reach the Beach. Yeah. And you know, I, I remember well going on tours that they were doing at that time. One with one especially because I took a lot of photographs on it uh, was the one they did with the police. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I've got lots of great shots of the. I mean, the whole line, the whole lineup was Oingo Boingo Madness, oh. Thompson Twins, oh. The Fix, and then the Police. Oh, that's like five of my favorite bands ever on one bill. Oh my gosh. Yeah, well, well me too. I mean, I was flabbergasted and they held their own, you know, second to last on the bill. Yeah. Underneath the police, they, they held that. It was fantastic. I mean, and even though the Thompson Twins had had more hits under their belt before that time, they didn't go down half as well as the fix did. Oh my gosh. Wow. So they were trashed by <laughs> a band who was right there in their moment, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was it. Oh my gosh, I would have given any, anything to see that. I've seen most of those people uh, individually, although I never saw the Thompson Twins back in the day, but I've seen everything, everyone else, I think, individually. But to see them all on one ticket like that would have been amazing. It was great. Yeah. That was, was an Oakland gig, and I also filmed a Fresno gig. Ooh. Yeah, the Oakland gig was just unbelievable. Oh, man. That massive Oakland Stadium, round, just round. I bet. Oh my gosh, I would have loved that. Um, okay, track nine, Privilege. Uh, this one has almost a little bit of a tropical or Latin-y feel to it. Correct me if I'm wrong, though a day's 24 hours long. How come you feel unwired and disconnected? Draw attention to yourself. Is your life a living hell? Change your right, rewrite the script the way you planned it. Read your news reports. Truth and fact distorts. And the world's majority is understated. The views are on your mind. It's the wavelength you must find. Be prepared to hold your weight. Privilege, you have the right. If you're on the frequency, yeah. You're on the frequency, oh yeah! So when you say that, there's always something else to do. There must be one thing you can try. There's always something else to do. Oh, but a week is just three days. It's the young always bay. But who keeps the cold at bay with understanding? If there's a dying urge inside To release forgotten pride To rely on words of gloom Don't be disjointed Brother, let you have the right If you're on the frequency Yeah If you're on the frequency Yeah So when you say that There's always something else to do 
feels very loose, uh, which for them is saying something because they feel so, you know. I, I loved it. I Did you? I loved, Good. I loved the track in a way that, um, you know, went beyond its its level of excellence. Like there was just something about the way that we put this groove together with the brushes and with the way that Jamie was playing guitar in a not so obviously Jamie West Jordan kind of way, because yeah. it was very yeah. muted, but but still the way his wrist was playing that rhythm uh, with the sort of knotted brushes and hi-hats and every, this little cluster of small sound in the middle. It's a very small sound making that rhythm. I just found it completely addictive. I could have listened to it for hours. In fact, what well, I did. Yeah. <laughs> Days. Yeah. Anyway. I love this song. And at the uh, when he when Cy does the you woo 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 part, that feels almost again, they feel looser or more frivolous, but not frivolous in an, in a way where yeah. it doesn't have value. It's just feels more like the fix kind of letting their hair down a little bit, you know? Well looser that's looser, the word. Looser, that's the word, yes. His vocal is you know, and he could always be like that. It was it was he was more likely to be loose about things than tight. You know, we would dive in on bits that we thought we should concentrate on and make tighter sometimes with his vocal approach if, if the track was still sort of fresh and, and just been written kind of thing. You know, in, in, in the way that one thing leads to another was, you know, that was made into its delineation between the choruses and verses very much in the studio. It wasn't something that was so clearly because we didn't have all the, you know, we didn't, Cy and I didn't do all those backing vocals on the chorus of one thing leads to, to another until we were in the studio. So the differences between the verse and the chorus were quite slight. You know, there's all those differences as you, as you work through the recording process and try and make different sections more dynamically developed, let's mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this track, I just love the fact that it was just that groove all the way through and lots of things would pop in and out and there's all kinds of incidental moments that pop in and out yeah and i i love it for that good uh you touched on something a second ago that i hadn't thought about before i don't do you remember a lot of writing or creating going on in the studio as you're putting this together or did they have 10 songs in at least demo form when they got to the studio to record the album that were then just sort of worked on uh, well, with the, say with the, the first album, it was all, everything was there. All the songs were there. I always like to, uh, do you know who Robert Christgau is? Don't think so. Okay. He's a very, he's a pretty prominent, uh, album. He's a music critic and, um, he's calls himself the Dean of American rock critics. And he's known for writing these very short and, uh, uh, it's almost curt these very short record reviews he says a lot with like two or three sentences and okay. um, I always he's from New York and he was very I mean his 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 uh, I don't know his comfort area is more like CBGB's kind of the Ramones and television and that kind of stuff but okay whenever possible I like to throw in his reviews of the album we talk about and as is his mind works similarly to size in that I don't always know what he's talking about and sometimes I don't even agree but his thought is reach the beach he gives it a C only which upsets me as with most Anglo disco this record success isn't totally bewildering it assembles an acceptable complement of catchy secondhand riffs and beats 
Only I suspect that what sells it is the very thing that makes me hope I never hear those riffs and beats again. Cy Cernan's agonized, can this be adulthood vocal style, influenced by everyone from Brian Ferry to Lou Graham, but oh, so much more doubt-ridden than any old fart. Again, I don't know how this guy became who he is, but that, that's the, those are the words of somebody very important, and I don't agree with any of it, you know? I, 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 I don't know what to say. It <laughs> I, 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 never, I never read critics because it's, uh-huh. it's fatal, ever. Yeah. And those people that write so intensely about music are always people that are so frustrated they're not any better at making music. You're probably they right. Were, they were, all those journalists are people that, they were, you know, yeah. They were bands that failed or they always wanted to be in a band or, you know, they, you, you don't write stuff like that unless you've got a chip. Yeah, I know. I feel that way too. So yeah, I never agree, rarely agree anyway with Robert Christgau, but I always think it's interesting to throw his reviews in here. That being said, places like allmusic.com, I think give Reach the Beach four and a half stars. I think Rolling Stone was preferable to Reach the Beach. Mostly across the board, this album has been embraced uh, pop from the masses and from the critics, except for this one. Yeah. Um, okay. The last track, outside. It sounds like a really. It sounds like an album closer to me. One thing that Cy does in this song is he goes into a higher register vocally, which you don't hear him do very often. Um, I, it's sort of got a pulsating feel to it. It closes with a very interesting Jamie guitar solo. It sounds like an end, like a closer. Do you remember that it always was? It's not intended to be, but when you were you were talking earlier about the um, sequencing of the album, was it always obvious to you that Outside belonged at the end? No, not obvious. But, but at the end, by the time I did the secret thing, it was obvious. But that that didn't affect any of the recording. It's only when you've got you know the body of work building over a period of whatever this took a couple of months to make. Um, you know, during the time you know you have you you have mounting opinions getting more and more solid 
about the kind of position on the record it needs to be. So it's, you know, although we save it till the very end to actually do that work and make those decisions, all the things that lead up to that decision-making process, you kind of, you know, you fill in little mental boxes in your head thinking, well, this will be a great, this is a perfect, you know, side closer, but not the end of the record, or this is a perfect side two opener, you know, that, you know, you get, you tend to get those, well, in album days anyway, you've got those side openers and closers in your mind. They were, they were always the most crucial. You could move the two or three tracks in between those tracks around, you know, much more freely. And they were much more de dependent on tempo and key and feel and, you know, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't planning on asking this and maybe you don't know off the top of your head. Do you have a favorite album opener? I mean, we talk about this album that you worked on, but you you're you were a musician yourself. You've done a bunch of other. Surely you love music. When you think back to like, what are the greatest track ones ever? What are some of the ones that come to mind for you per personally? I do. You know, I I think actually you've done well there, John. And this is probably the first time I've ever been asked that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Huh. Album or, openers. Or a tr or an album closer. Can you think of like the perfect album closer? Oh, I can think of some really good album closers, but you know, some of them are dazzlingly obvious and they could almost only work there. Like I did an album with Camel hmm. in the late seventies. They were pretty big. They were at a Genesis level at that time. Mm -hmm. And they were, you know, much loved prog rock band. Um, and they had one track that was just can't even remember what it's called now because it's not vocal, it's um, instrumental, but it had a very long, like a three minute guitar solo on the end that was just gorgeous. It was a very spatial, sort of what would have been known later on as a Gilmore-esque kind of a solo. Mm -hmm. So nothing flashy, not, you know, rock, mm -hmm. widdly stuff, just long floating notes mm -hmm. and, and beautifully melodic. And Andy Latimer was great at doing that uh, and that playing that track i remember as we did it said well you know this is an amazing track but not everyone's going to get to a song like this they're going to need to be set up and satisfied before they get there and then when they get that to sail out on into the horizon they will love it okay so so sometimes there are tracks that are, are one undeniable position but that that does tend to be Maybe not album closers, but at least side closers. That's right. what I love about being able to split an album into part one and part two. That was one of the best aspects of mm -hmm. vinyls as opposed to CDs and as opposed to just nothing these days. Right. Um, that, that process was lovely because you could conduct the mood of your mm -hmm. audience for a whole you know, hour, more or less. Yeah. Uh, if they were going to, and most, let's face it, a lot of people back in those days would listen to a whole album. Mm -hmm. They would opt to listen to 50 minutes plus of music from top to down and love the fact that it would be a journey through all these songs that their favorite, songs that they remember, songs like you and I have revealed today that we've heard don't remember. <laughs> so, ready. Or, or if it's not even remember, it's don't associate so much sure. with that album. And favorite. My attention, it's hard to get away from great side closers. Mm. 
I can think of, of a lot of tracks that I've done that were undeniably side or album closers. And once you've accepted that, you sort of amplify that by making it an even broader and bigger painting, perhaps because it was going to be the picture that you were sailing out on at the end of the record. Mm -hmm. But openers tend to be more, I mean, they tend to be more to do with attention grabbing. I mean, right. the, you know, the thing that a lot of people do, they put their most favorite shot for a single and the final sequencing goes track two. People say, well, why, why did you track two? You know, why don't you do track one? Put that hot shot right at the front of the album. In my case, anyway, I can only speak for myself here. It's because track two might be the hookiest, the most memorable, the most instant. Mm -hmm. All these things which are dangerously close to that word commercial, which mm -hmm. most of us don't care about. We don't want to write music to be commercial. We want to write music that people love right. and that people want and need, and that becomes commercial. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a, a first track, an opening track, is more about... Uh, a really good and sudden clear view into an artist mm -hmm. and in the case of a band that's the whole band are well represented and it's a lovely mix of all their best ingredients but it may not be the biggest and best and most catchy track mm -hmm. it's just a great introduction to the whole project you know all all of the players the producer the you know all songs the nature of the songs everything is presented right up front in a maximum way. That's what I tend to usually do. Yep. And most often, singles tend to be track two or... Yeah, later. I totally agree. I, I have that same kind of philosophy. <laughs> I like the first song to... <clears throat> I almost sometimes think it's cheating a little bit if the first song is the big single, because I think yeah. you... you uh, I like it to be track two. We want that first song to be like announcing the presence of the album with authority it's just knocking you out this is what's shaking you you know this is what you're up this is yeah. what you're in for and then track two becomes that uh, big single it doesn't always have to be that way but those are that's kind of how i philosophize about it too i, I definitely agree that it shouldn't you know the, your biggest shot at the signal sh shouldn't be the first track it really shouldn't yeah yeah thank you oh you know what i thought of one more question that i wanted to ask you uh, going back to george underwood and his artwork the mm -hmm. the the album cover, do you remember, was that called Reach the Beach? Did he create that for the album cover? Was it a painting that George had that the Fix liked and so they commissioned it? Do you remember where that came from? I mean, it was certainly not called Reach the Beach or anything. Mm -hmm. That was, But whether that painting already existed, I can't be 100% sure about that. Okay. Okay. I mean, because after that, they it was definitely a, a commission. You know, every, mm -hmm. every album after that had... One of his paintings on it but it's interesting right then at that moment in time it's quite possible that the painting already existed i actually don't know okay we'd have to, we'd have to ask that yeah no big deal um i should i keep the fix are by far at this point the most requested group that i ever get for to come on the show and i keep meaning to reach out to side i just it feels like they're perpetually on tour and like i mentioned i'm they're going to be here in denver in like two weeks uh, and they're here at least once a year. I mean, I've seen, you know, I could, last year I didn't go to the Reach the Beach show because I had seen them the year before. So it's like, right. I, you know, I don't know that I need to go to every single time, even though I love yeah. them, but they just seem perpetually on tour. So I haven't done it yet. I do enjoy playing. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those few bands that they're all the original members. So mm -hmm. that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. 
Well, look, uh, thanks for doing this with me, Rupert. I, uh, you're, you're the best. You're a legend, and I consider myself very uh, grateful and lucky and fortunate that I get to take some of your time and hear from you about this kind of stuff. It's, it's important history, and I, I get to be the lucky one that gets to hear it. So thank you for doing this with me. Nice. Well, you're the only, you're the only person that does is doing this kind of work at this sort of level. So that must be good for your podcast because you know you'll get things that it's not like I'm repeating this all over the shop with loads of websites. I do work with Cherry Red and Esoteric Records mm -hmm. because I'm involved with putting out my own uh, re-releases uh, and when we do remasterings and all that. So I do quite a lot of PR stuff with them. But in terms of the production work. Um, no, it's not often we'll go back. I mean, with certain, but I've done it a bit with Rush. There are certain things, you know, but um, it's nice to do it with the stick, with the fix, because they are, you know, they were never really big over here in Britain. And that was the one sort of rather sad. That is weird. <laughs> yeah. Whenever your British bands come over here and get bigger than they would have been back home is just an odd um, thing to me. I don't, I can't ever figure out why that works. Oh, it's very clear. It's very, it's very oh, much really? that, that the the English press in the seventies and eighties, particularly uh, music music press, were the second that one of Britain's bands you know, had success in America first. From that moment on, they never got a good review about anything. Really, they just resented the fact that you know we we seemingly couldn't get it together with our own fans here in England, so we had to go off somewhere else. Whereas it wasn't that. You know, we we not played, and I say we, I mean the band mm -hmm. had not toured the whole country. I mean they played a lot of the London gigs before all this happened, but they didn't tour the country. So they hadn't really got started. It was just the Americans dived in on one thing leads to another so fast and made the band so big so quickly that we had no alternative but to go off and support everything in the states and you know, people just naturally loved it they didn't need to be sold by great reviews they were just hearing it on the radio and going fuck me i want to buy this yeah yeah i guess i should i i probably should have mentioned this sooner uh mtv probably had a big hand in all, all of this we the mtv really took to the visionary videos that the band was making at the time and um it was a, a talk about a cohesive marriage like you and them mtv and the fix also similarly you know helping each other become successful for sure and don't forget we were both jeanette the other lyricist or the occasional lyricist for the fix and myself um you know jointly we made all those early video videos you did i didn't know that yeah <laughs> like were you in the room making one thing leads to another yeah yeah very much so that one yeah really it was, you know, almost all of them. We were, we came up, you know, with with sign. We worked out ideas for scripts. So usually, usually the script basic ideas came from Jeanette. I was more of a sort of directorial role. She would direct individual close up things with them, and I would direct stuff that needed more hmm. organizing than that. And uh, yeah, we did it a lot with the things. We I think five or six videos, that, all, all from the first hmm. two albums. I didn't realize you were that involved in that side of everything. Yeah, yeah mainly with the fix. I've not. I mean, I've done my own videos for my own albums, obviously, right. but the fix were really the only production um, band or wow. artist. Work with. I did the videos mostly because it it took so long. Yeah. 
I mean, you compare with doing the tracks. I mean, you could spend three weeks on a video for one song, mm-hmm. and that's an awful lot of time. I, I, you know, for anyone other than the fix, I didn't really want to repeat the process. To be honest, it yeah. was great doing with them because they were always such good mates, and we always enjoyed it. And we were never the video directors, and that we were just—it was us. It was the same team that made the records, going on to make the video. Huh? I wouldn't have. I had no idea. But yeah, that makes sense. You guys really were a team. Well, look, uh, thank you uh, once again. There you have it, guys. Reach the Beach. Such a great album. And I I know I just got done saying this to him and to you, but it is not lost on me for a second how fortunate we are to have conversations like this with someone like Rupert about this stuff. Think about it. This is rock history. This is important pop history that is not necessarily documented this deeply in other places. And we are lucky enough to hear from someone like Rupert to tell us these stories. Do you know how lucky we are? Anyway, I just want to say thanks again to Rupert for giving me his time. And thanks all of you for listening. If you uh, are a fan of The Fix and you're listening to this, let them know that you heard it and you liked it. So that they and other fans will become aware of it and can share it with their fans. Everybody who loves The Fix deserves to hear this. Okay, we will be back next week with another episode as we always do. Thanks, everybody.